Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Marshall Lichty. This episode is 185 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Jordan Furlong about the state of the legal industry in 2018 and some of the clear trends shaping the near future. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Ruby Receptionist, Law Clerk, and New Law Business Model. We appreciate their support, and we will tell you more about them later in the show. Yeah, so on this week's Lens episode, Sam and I talked about design thinking for law firms, and I think it's great timing because we just launched a new page about design thinking. So Marshall, tell us about design thinking and what's on that, what will lawyers find on that page? Yeah, one of the stickiest problems I had when I ran my law firm was finding problems, having a systematic way to think about them and solve them. And so when I started paying more attention to design thinking, I kind of fell in love with it because I think it's the way to do it. I think it's a systematic way to look at problems, think about solutions, and implement those solutions in meaningful ways. Yeah, I like the way Nicole Braddock, who's been on the podcast a couple times, describes it as structured problem solving for lawyers. So if you are struggling to understand why design is a word that you should be concerned about, just think about it. It's just like learning to think like a lawyer, learning to solve problems like a designer is just another skill set. And you can apply it to the way you build your business, the way you solve problems. It's just another skill that we think lawyers need to pick up. And if you want to know more about it, we talked about it in this week's Lens, which is our weekly YouTube show that you can find on our YouTube channel. So check that out. Subscribe to the YouTube channel so you don't miss an episode and so you help other people find the show. And now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Dan Lear on behalf of Law Clerk. And then we'll jump into my conversation with Jordan Furlong. And as all conversations with Jordan Furlong, you are not going to want to miss that. Hey, everybody. I'm Dan Lear. I'm the principal and CEO of a company called Right Brain Law. I do technology consulting for legal tech companies, uh, lawyers, and other folks in the legal arena. Hey, Dan. Good to hear from you again. I believe the last time we had you anywhere near this podcast or even maybe on lawyerists' pages, you were working with Avo, which has since been sold, and you've moved on. Tell us, how do you come to be doing what you're doing now and working with Law Clerk? Right. I was podcast adjacent maybe at that point, <laughs> Sam. So yeah, I, I left Avo a couple months ago. I don't know when this podcast will come out, but I left uh, in early June. And uh, I just am super passionate about pushing sort of the technology revolution here in the legal sector. And so I've started my own gig to help companies and other folks looking to solve problems at the intersection of law and tech do exactly that. Cool. So you are working for Law Clerk now, as I mentioned, and Law Clerk is a service built for lawyers by lawyers to help lawyers get freelance legal help. We've had some Law Clerk folks on the podcast before, so our listeners have probably heard a bit about it. But I'm curious, since you are sitting where you are, what do you think some of the pros and cons are when lawyers build their own solutions versus when non-lawyers build solutions for lawyers? Yeah, I mean, I think one really obvious question for most lawyers is like, how do you find the time, mm -hmm. right? We see the, the Clio Trends Report, which uh, suggests that, that lawyers find so little billable time in their days. So finding the time to be a lawyer 
and build technology is a challenge in and of itself. And a practice is something that needs constant minding. So I think one huge piece is how do you find time to keep putting bread on the table and build technology? And I think that's an open and interesting question. But I think most people would say that like one of the big advantages is that lawyers know the subject matter better than anybody else, right? Absolutely. No, and that's exactly where I was going to go. I mean, they feel some of the problems that technology can solve very acutely. And one cool thing about, I think, Law Clerk in particular, uh, and which is something that many lawyers can do if they build their own solutions, they actually uh, dogfooded or betaed their own solution for quite some time before they rolled it out in public. And so they had an opportunity to test real time whether or not their solution, and in this case, whether this marketplace would scale because they had a law firm to test it in. So I think that's one really good reason that lawyers are well positioned to do this. Huh. I think you and I are on the same page on this, that sometimes it feels like by being so close to the problem, lawyers may not be able to see what the solution needs to be. Yeah, I think there's two things here. I think the first is, and again, I, I'm a lawyer, uh, so I, I say this with all love and due respect, but lawyers, in my opinion, aren't necessarily the best people to be builders, or at least they're not dispositionally inclined to. I think a lot of times their skeptical nature makes it really hard for them to sort of be builders as opposed to be skeptics, which is, again, what they get paid for. So I think that's one piece. I think there's another piece, too, where – and I think this is maybe true of, of most innovators or people who want to build things – is you are so close to the problem that maybe you don't um, always sort of raise your eyes to see whether someone else has solved this problem in a different, better, or more effective way. You know, and again, I think a lot of people think like, oh, I have this problem, therefore there must be a mass market for it, and this is a problem in the world that needs to be solved. Whereas, A, the truth may be that you're, an, you're sort of a, an audience of one or an N of one, as they say. You're the only one who really wants that problem solved. Or B, someone else has already solved it. I kind of think that's sort of something that I see over and over and again in the legal profession, where there are a ton of different law practices. They are both more and less unique than we all want to believe they are. Mm. But I think lawyers have a tendency to project our subjective experience within our own practice onto all practices. You know, like I'm a criminal defense lawyer, and so all lawyers must be as worried about attorney-client privilege as I am when I talk to my clients, which probably doesn't need to be true for a typical small business lawyer, but it's hard to connect over those issues in a meaningful way. And I think that probably spills over into technology adoption. If I'm having this problem, then everyone must be having this problem in the same way that I'm experiencing it. Yeah. And that's, I think, a beautiful summation of the dichotomy of this challenge of lawyers building technology. On the one hand, they understand the problem so intimately that, it, that they make for really great sort of case studies. On the other, uh, they have a, a tendency maybe to overgeneralize where that's not appropriate and can ultimately be their doom or at least a, the waste of a lot of time and energy in building something out that really only they would ever use. And fortunately, the market will more or less sort it out. If you build something that only you will use, then that will probably be the result. If you build something that's useful to more people than just you, as Law Clerk did, if you dog food it yourself and then put it out on the market and people want it, then the market helps you sort it out, I guess. Yeah, capitalism is a beautiful thing that way. <laughs> <laughs> so listeners, if you want to see what a freelance lawyer service built by lawyers for lawyers looks like, you can visit lawclerk.legal/lawyerist to learn more and to download a free white paper about how to use freelancers ethically in your practice. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Hello, I'm
I'm Jordan Furlong. I am an author, speaker, lawyer, and legal market analyst based in Ottawa, Canada, and I write a blog called Law 21. Welcome back, Jordan. I love having you on the podcast, and I had a whole topic that I threw out the window because of a recent post <laughs> that you did. All right. And so <laughs> you wrote about who really owns your law firm, and the gist of it was that a lot of uh, people who own law firms, whether it's partners in big firms, and I'm extrapolating that to owners of small law firms, behave like high-level employees rather than actual owners. Yeah. And so I'm kind of wondering what got you thinking about this and how you wound up at that topic. Well, Sam, it's funny because I've, I've had a bunch of engagements recently where I'm speaking to lawyers, especially law firms for retreats and so forth. And I was struck, as I have been for a while, that in any given audience of lawyers, there's always a certain segment who are clearly engaged with the subject. They're they're leaning forward, they're paying attention. And, and it's not that they necessarily are, you know, buying everything I'm selling, right? They, you know, sometimes they're kind of skeptical, sometimes they're kind of excited, whatever. But they're into it. But they're into it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Either way. But there's also a certain mass of lawyers, and whether it's a critical mass or not, I don't know, who are really just never going to be that engaged, right? They're, they kind of drift off a little bit. They, they look down at their smartphones or they, they, they kind of tune out. And while I'm very tempted to take that personally, of course, as we all are, I really think, judging what I've, from what I've heard from other people who've discussed these topics in these kinds of forums, for a lot of these lawyers, they're just not that engaged with their role as an owner and director of the firm. Because mm -hmm. what I'm talking about, what I'm saying to them is that, look, folks, here are the challenges for your firm. And I know it matters to you how your firm is doing, its its productivity and its effectiveness and its profitability and its and its legacy. And and I kind of look at them and I realize, actually, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't really matter <laughs> to them very much at all. They're waiting for this to be over so they can go back to their office and bill some more hours. It's interesting, too, because like those lawyers who are engaged, I meet them all the time, right? I'm out speaking mm -hmm. or something and I'm talking about innovation or whatever. And, and people are like, yeah, I'm, in, I'm into all that stuff. And, and they're engaged and they want to talk more. Um, and then they don't do anything <laughs> about it. Yeah. And that, that puts me in mind of a, a couple of studies from Clio, from Thompson, that really indicate that most law firms know what their challenges are. And my guess is even those disengaged lawyers know what the challenges that the firm faces are, at least in a roundabout way. But they aren't doing anything about it. The Thompson study comes right out and asks lawyers, are you doing anything about your challenges? And by and large, the answer is no. And in the Clio study, we're not seeing the numbers change year after year. So people aren't actually addressing them. And so I think it's like there's a challenge for both of those groups of lawyers, uh, the engaged ones and the disengaged ones. Both of them are having trouble. I think that's a really good point, Sam. And and it's really reflected again in the experiences that I'm, I'm having when talking with the lawyers in all sorts of contexts, because you're right. It is not as if, if when I'm going into law firms and I can say, look, here's the big picture. OK, that's fine. That's helpful. Here are some very practical steps, which we kind of pulled together for your particular firm or office or whatever that you can do. And it's not as if these aren't the Ten Commandments coming down from the mountain. This is not news necessarily to these folks. Uh, it reminds me of, and I said this to someone the other day, the old, the old saying is culture eats strategy for breakfast. And, mm -hmm. and that's true. But what I've added to that is execution pops them both for a mid-morning snack. <laughs> right. If you have a strategy, but you aren't doing anything, then it doesn't matter. 
<laughs> exactly right. And and I think a lot of it really is that the people, and it's a wide range. Uh, there's managing partners and practice group leaders who are into this. There's younger lawyers and up-and-comers. And there's even some veterans, some grizzled veterans who get it. But their difficulty is that they cannot seem to shift the overall cultural momentum or spirit of the partnership because there's any number of partners who say, I'm just not that concerned about it. And what this made me realize was these what these folks love, these partners, they love all the benefits of being a partner in a law firm, right? They get a, a cut of the, of the overall profits. They are able to stick the word partner on their card and show it <laughs> off a little bit. They can, you know, if, if they're the kind of people who enjoy bossing other people around, and if they're lawyers, there's a pretty good chance that they are, then they get to do that. And it, it gives them a certain degree of defense against their own autonomy and so forth. But the flip side of all that, the idea that, but look, you actually are all, you're the owner of a business now. You are an active, committed, managing, working shareholder in a business that needs to be sustained, needs to be profitable, needs to be very competitive in a tough environment. And that aspect of it is absolutely not engaged there. And, and, and the problem is, it's really hard to persuade someone to care about something that they don't want to care about. Well, and they're not being rewarded for caring about it, right? Yes. I mean, all, yes. all of the incentives and rewards at big firms in particular, but at many small firms, are built around revenue. How much money are you bringing in? And the way you bring it in is primarily by billing hours or putting in time, even if you're on a flat fee model. Oh, exactly. Well, you know, you get what you pay for. And what we pay lawyers for is bringing, uh, bringing business in and sending uh, hours out. And uh, and this is true again, not even in not even just in law, in large firms, as you say, but in in mid-sized, small, even sole practices, because it's the most visible, direct, tangible evidence of of the success of your business is the is the is the flow of money. And of course, that's natural. This is what you tend to focus on. But there is there, there's still an obligation to work. And I don't know how many people I've I've heard to tell me this mostly in the law, but also outside of it as well, is I am so busy working uh, in the I don't have time to work on the business. Right. And I think that's especially true that the smaller the firm, and this is what Clio's results have told us as well, right? They, they found that, totally. yeah, the solo and small firm lawyers are only billing, what, two, one or two or plus hours a day because they're so busy running their business. And, and that's kind of maybe a built-in challenge. But one of the, the, one of the whole points of being in a law firm of several lawyers is that you can, you know, pool all your resources, your talent and your time, and you can actually find some people and open up some time to deal with these issues. And again, it's, it, it is a, I want to say it's a cultural thing, but it's also very much a personal thing because you get right down to the lawyer, him or herself, and you, you talk to them, you try to engage them on this point, And it, there, there is a recognition either. It's apathy. <laughs> it really is. I, I, I'd like to find a nicer word for it, for it, but I really can't find it. And and the problem is, short of an emergency, short of a crisis, they're not going to really stop what they're doing and pay attention. And by that point, of course, it's almost certainly too late. And they're one, and, and they look around and wonder, well, how did things get so bad? They got so bad because they were steadily deteriorating and you weren't paying attention. I hate to put it that baldly, but that's what it comes down to. No, and like reading your post made a light bulb go off for me because like, you know, we've been we've been doing our small firm scorecard for a while now. And so I've got enough data that I think I can go, aha, here are the here are the reasons why your firm isn't doing well at these things. You know, you're not tracking. We know that firms rate themselves low on tracking KPIs or having clear roles and responsibilities or competitive and marketing strategies. And then I read your post and it's like, except a lot of them are apathetic about it. <laughs> like they don't, they don't understand why they need those things. They have plenty to do. 
And I think there's like this as for as long as you have enough work to churn out to, to hit your goals so that you're busy from, you know, dawn till dusk or whatever, you can ignore this stuff, right? Cause like you're able to bill hours and, and bring in money, either the firm structure or your, your bank statement says that you're doing a good job and it pats you on the head. And even, even if you are having those same challenges with getting clients, getting paid, getting things done, there's a period, there's sort of like a, an elastic period where you can fill your hours and still feel like you're doing, you know, enough work and you're doing fine. But like it's how do, getting people to care is it's either a crisis or somebody needs to really wake up and get motivated. And it's kind of like getting people to the gym or something. <laughs> in, in fairness to the, to the lawyers and to the partners and, and somebody either on my either on the blog post itself or at LinkedIn made this point. They said, you know, it's not as if we have ever received any training or preparation for this role as owner. And I think that's that is true, at least within the North American. It's true, but it's also a bullshit excuse. Like we counsel a lot of businesses on how to own and how to, you know, we, we counsel businesses. We know better. Oh yeah. Well, and, and, and and these are skills you can learn, but what strikes me is that the the fact that we're not teaching them in North America is itself not an excuse. And I'll give you Mm -hmm. an example. I I gave a presentation, uh, it was a webinar recently to a program, uh, in New Zealand, The, the New Zealand law society has something called the stepping up course. And I thought this was fascinating when they told me all about it. And it's it's a little bit like bar admissions, but it, it's not meant for brand new lawyers necessarily. If any lawyer it makes a declaration to say, I want to practice law as the equity owner of a law practice. So that is to say, if you're opening up your own firm or you are joining a firm of uh, a number of lawyers or you've entered partnership at a, at a larger firm, in any concept, in any event in which you are about to own a piece of equity in a legal services business, you must take this course. And you have to learn about business fundamentals and client care and trust accounting and so forth. Hmm. And that just strikes me as an easy thing to do. It really is mandatory CLE in a lot of ways or CPD. It would not be a difficult thing to do, and it would really help resolve a whole lot of issues. So, so there's a certain role, I think, where the regulator needs, in any given jurisdiction, needs to step up and recognize this as a challenge as well. You know, one of the things that I've been um, harping on recently, I guess, <laughs> harping maybe, um, but is this, you know, when, whenever I talk to ethics regulators about, you know, the source of complaints, the things that rise to the top are things like trust accounting, uh, irregularities, uh, lack of communication, dissatisfaction with the bill. Yeah. Those are the, some of the main things that generate ethics complaints. And none of those have anything to do with professional obligations, right? Oh, yeah. Those are all business practices. So like there's a, there's a huge overlap between, I think, between just running a good and healthy business and paying attention to that and staying out of things like ethical hot water, which should get lawyers to sit up and take notice, I would think. You, you would think so. But, but again, as you, and I have, <laughs> as you and I have both found, lawyers are about as good at business as business people are good at law. The difference being business people don't assume that, oh, well, I'm such a successful business business person. Uh, this legal stuff is easy. I'll handle all that myself, right? Business people don't believe that it's okay for them to dabble as amateurs in legal matters. And yet, as lawyers, we, because we think we're the smartest people in the room, we tend to say, well, we, we can kind of figure this business kind of stuff out. It just goes to the heart of this idea that we should surround ourselves with people and structures and platforms and any kind of assistance we can get to help us 
run this business, run this operation, so we can focus on the things we're really good at, which is solving legal problems and dealing with clients and so forth. And and again, uh, the solution is right there. The solution, you could package it up and, and give it to someone in, with, with a bow on top, but they have to care. You can lead a horse to water, but whether or not it drinks is entirely up to itself. We need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then I want to jump on something you just said. So we'll be right back. Support for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists, dedicated to helping you grow your practice one happy color at a time. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby's live virtual receptionists work in tandem with their innovative technology to answer your calls live with your custom greeting, transfer calls through to you when and where you want, collect new client intake and messages, make follow-up calls, and more. Delighting your callers in English and Spanish just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. They integrate with Clio, Rocket Matter, and Lexicata, as well as the contacts and calendar on your cell phone to easily integrate into your workflow. Ruby can host your local phone number or provide you with one, giving you the opportunity to make dual use of your phone. Call clients using your office or personal number as you please via the Ruby mobile app. For over 15 years, thousands of attorneys have been turning rings into relationships with Ruby receptionists. To learn more, call 844-715-7829 or visit callruby.com slash lawyerist2018. Alexis Neely has been training lawyers on the new law business model she created to build her million-dollar law practice for more than 10 years. Over that time, she saw that some lawyers were hugely and immediately successful with it, and others spun their wheels, never getting anywhere. Just recently, she decided to figure out what made the difference. After reviewing all of her clients' successes and failures, as well as her own, she identified five shifts that were the common denominator among all the lawyers who today have high six- and seven-figure law practices they love. To learn what she discovered and apply it to your life and law practice, go to newlawbusinessmodel.com slash lawyerist. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars, LawPay. Okay, we're back. So Jordan, you just said that lawyers are about as good at business as business people are good at law. And that seems to me to beg the question of why are we still dragging our feet on non-lawyer ownership? Like <laughs> if, if training lawyers to be good business people is possible, but it doesn't seem to scale and it doesn't seem to happen all that often. And so shouldn't we really be taking that more seriously or should we just throw up our hands and wait for the regulators to finally do it? Oh gosh, I would love it if we would take it more seriously, uh, especially since, uh, speaking for myself, I threw up my hands and waited for regulators about five or ten years ago. <laughs> and, How's that going and, for you? <laughs> well, like, like like Vladimir and Esther John, I'm hanging out underneath a tree uh, and, uh, and I really don't think they're coming. For me, it really is one of these things where we, as lawyers, I think, have an obligation to you can pick the entity to which we owe our obligation, whether it is the court and the rule of law or our clients or our colleagues or our business or the people who depend on our business uh, to operate properly. But we owe it to ourselves to have a very tough conversation, which starts with the question of why exactly is it that we believe people who are not lawyers should not own equity in a law firm? 
Mm -hmm. Because all the discussions I have with regulators and opponents, and there are quite a few of both, obviously, in this area, comes down to, well, you can't have non-lawyers owning a law firm. And it, and we never really seem to well, dig... Protect clients, right? This is what it comes down to. We have to protect our clients. And, yeah. and, and I always want to drill down a bit further and say, protect them from what? Right. Protect exactly. them from the business errors that law firms are making because they don't know <laughs> how to run businesses. Like, it's so circular and obvious and dumb. <laughs> well, well the, the, the underlying premise of the, of the restriction against people who aren't lawyers owning uh, a piece of law firms is that if enough people who aren't lawyers have equity control over a legal practice, then they could influence judgment over the lawyers in such ways that the lawyers are compelled not to give their best professional service. That, that is, that's the fundamental argument. Mm -hmm. uh, to which I have always felt uh, compelled to argue, why are you assuming that people who aren't lawyers are evil? or are crooked, or are, you know, out to d destroy things and so forth, you know, where is this idea that we have this higher virtuous ideal as lawyers? Or, or that lawyers are just going to surrender. A, they're going to take on an evil partner, and then B, surrender to them and all of their integrity and, and honesty and professional obligations. That's not exactly. going to happen. Lawyers aren't bad people. Well, you know, well, this is, I mean, some lawyers are bad people, some lawyers <laughs> aren't. But, mm -hmm. but my thing is that, it, are we such delicate flowers right. that that we cannot, you know, withstand? I mean, again, if uh, take a look at someone who works uh, in house at a, at, a, at a corporation, and of course, as we know, any number of lawyers today uh, work for people who are not lawyers. Obviously, anybody who's in any kind of corporate counsel context, anybody who works in a public sector law department. If you work in, if you're a lawyer in the administration office of a university, the number of lawyers out there who work in uh, entities that are only controlled by lawyers is actually very small. Mm -hmm. right? and, when, and when you stop and think about that, you kind of realize, you know what? That's the exception, and it's going to become more exceptional. And I don't want to. I, this is a, like a thirty-second sidebar because I don't want to get sidetracked on this. But there's all the trends I'm seeing indicate that more and more lawyers are being drawn into institutional settings. They're working directly for clients. They are working directly for the public sector. They're working directly for uh, any kind of particular uh, in, individual uh, client. And and the idea that lawyers in law firms who are entirely purely separate, I think, are going to become not not a minority. Minority, I don't think anytime soon, but they're going to become fewer and fewer. Hmm. So this idea we have to look at to say, all right, someone works for an in-house uh, law corporation. I would like a regulator to go to a general counsel and say, my belief to you, Ms. or Mr. General Counsel, is that if the board of directors of your company told you to do something unethical, you would bend your, you would bend to their will and you would throw away all of your ethical promises and oaths and you would do this horrible thing, right? And the general counsel would say, out of my office right now, thank you. <laughs> right? But again, that's the basic message we're sending. Totally. So, I, I, so I guess what I would like us to do as a profession, and it would be wonderful if regulators would start this conversation, but at the very least, they should respond to it, which is to dig into this question of okay, which of these two things is true about non-lawyer uh, restrictions on ownership. Is it that non-lawyers are worse people than we are, or is it that we are delicate flowers who cannot possibly uh, resist any outside interference in our judgment? Because one of these two things has to be the reason why we don't allow people who aren't lawyers to own law firms. I would love for a regulator or opponent to tell me which one of these it, these it is <laughs> and, and to explain to me how they came to that conclusion. So Jordan, we've been talking about how, at least we started out talking about how lawyers who uh, come into a leadership or ownership role ought to behave like it. What does that mean? 
what does the mental state of an owner look like that is different from a mental state of a high-level employee who just happens to sit in that chair? It's a really good question. And and I've tried to sort of develop some of these, these ideas a little bit in the post, because obviously, if you are a partner in a law firm, one of the re you know the whole point of a, a of leverage in a law firm is that you are providing enough work to you know keep yourself busy and at least one other person part of the time, uh, and and that's how most partners view their sole obligation is to bring enough money in so that enough work in that somebody else can can make a living, which is fine, but my view of it is that if you are again an active shareholder of a, of a of a legal services business then your obligations to the business include at least an awareness of how the firm is doing mm. now now fair enough a, a consultant uh, i know uh, in in uh, in the uk in a comment to the post said and, and you think most law firms even know how they're doing, <laughs> you know, uh, in, in terms of uh, institutional profitability, that's a fair point. Uh, but if, if I'm a partner in a law firm and uh, the, the, the managing partner comes to me and says, okay, here is your uh, draw this year and it's up 3% or down 2% and that's all they tell me, I'm like, whoa, hang on. I'm not, there's more to this business than just me. How are we doing generally? What are, what are our most profitable areas of practice. Where are we making the most money? Where are we losing money? Uh, are we have, do we have practice areas where we are bleeding money? Because I guarantee you there are, right? So even an awareness and a willingness and, and an interest in saying, how are we doing as a whole, as an entity? So I think that's really big. Cross-selling, which is a terrible term and I wish we could find a better. <laughs> but this idea of you got to promote the firm and promote its capacities to your clients and the market. And this is actually really interesting because I'm having, I'm giving a presentation to a firm uh, in, in about a week's time that's going to be touching on this subject. And, and as you know, many, many law firms of all sizes struggle with cross-selling, right? The idea that partner A does something, partner B goes to a client and says, hey, partner A is awesome. You should hire him or her to do this kind of stuff. And this hardly ever happens. And the reason it hardly ever happens, I think, for the most part, is that there is very little what you might call esprit de corps in law firms. I think in an ideal law firm situation, any given lawyer can say of a colleague, a win for him or a win for her is a win for me, right? It is, we are all part of the same team here. And if he or she does well, then I feel like I've done well as, uh, in addition. Not just because this extra money is gonna rise, uh, you know, uh, the tide will rise all boats. Not just because uh, just I'm gonna get uh, make more money, but because this person's on my team. Right. And, and, and it's and, and I think lawyers, I don't know what it is about us, whether it is natural or it's learned, but we don't tend to think team-wise. I have a personal theory that the majority of lawyers, if you ask lawyers, what is your favorite physical activity to participate in, right? Uh, hmm. Sport or game or something. I'll bet you it is swimming or it's tennis or it's golf or it's something where the I mean, it's probably golf for anybody over like golf. 50, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And one of the reasons why is that it's a purely individual activity. Lawyers are not mm -hmm. lawyers don't play soccer or baseball or or football because these are team activities. I'm embarrassed, right? but that's totally true for me too. <laughs> well, this is it, right? You know, it's again whether it's learned or natural, I don't know. So so a really big step forward. And what I say to law firms is, listen, cross-selling is not the problem. Cross-selling is a symptom. 
If you have a firm where everybody's looking out for themselves and they don't really care about what anybody else is doing, then of course your cross-selling is going to stink. Why would you expect it to be any different? So what you need is a firm where people are genuinely invested and engaged in what other people are doing and their success makes you feel good. And I know that your average lawyer would just snort and say, oh, please, that's not like any law firm in, in the real world. And maybe it's not, but it is. But that is the only way in which you will get a firm in which people, because again, partner B is never gonna promote partner A unless partner B really genuinely feels like partner A is terrific. And my clients are gonna benefit from dealing with her or dealing with him. Hmm. Uh, it's, it, it's an attitudinal change, it's a cultural change, but, but it is not a fantasy change. I am convinced about that. And the reason I'm convinced is that you can find organizations filled with lawyers who do have that esprit de corps. Right. Some law firms, a lot of law departments uh, work this way. A lot of the legal startups, this is kind of like the, the, the nature of what they do. So uh, it, it's, it's all, it's, it goes back to culture, right? Culture and execution. That is everything you need to know about a law firm is right there. I mean, it feels like if you have culture right, you're probably doing this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the mere fact that you have thought of asserting a culture and defending it and, and advocating for it and rewarding and hiring and firing based on it means that you're working together as a team. That's just what it is. And, and the single biggest challenge for law firms and legal organizations of all kinds, to my mind anyway, comes down to the question of what culture do you have? What culture do you want? because these are almost certainly two different things. And what is stopping you? What's in the way of getting from where you were to where you want to be? And almost always what's stopping you is that there is a certain number of partners who are either, as we've talked about, disengaged entirely from the ownership role or who are actively engaged in an ownership role, but in a very obstructionist way. But you know, the, 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 one, the, the consultant I've learned kind of the most from uh, in this business, Jerry Riskin of Edge International. He, he's talked to law firms of all sizes all around the world. And one of the things he's always said to his people is that, uh, to, the, to his clients is, you've got to have the right people on the bus. And if you've got the wrong people on the bus, then you need to pull over by the side of the road and start the process of helping <laughs> give them a transfer onto a different route because you're never going to get to where you need to go without that step. Jordan, uh, let's say uh, for our listeners, I, I think obviously one working on culture, using um, using your values and hiring and firing and including among them, if you're bringing on owners, some sort of ownership um, talent or um, desire at least, uh, seems like a great idea. But what if some of our listeners who own their own firms are like, uh, we've struck a chord with them and now they realize that they need to change. Like, how do you change your perspective from a high level worker to an owner? You know, it, it's actually funny, Sam. It's a really interesting, uh, interesting point and a good question, because uh, this uh, th th this this event in New Zealand where I was speaking uh, on on the webinar, one of the things they had asked me about was a, a lot of our people here are sole practitioners or they're just starting out on their own or in very small firms, and a lot of this stuff seems very abstract to them in terms of leadership and ownership and so mm -hmm. forth. And how can we kind of translate that to them? And, and they have to occupy that role in part time, right? Yeah, well, it's exactly right. It's, it's, it's hard to do. So the way that I put it was, look, I, I worked in, uh, as, as, as Sam, as you know, I, I worked uh, for a bar association for a number of years and was in a supervisory management position over a small number of employees. And I made it my practice, whenever I was hiring someone for any role that was going to report to me, I made it a practice to say, 
could this person take my job someday, <laughs> right? And if they couldn't, then they probably weren't right for the job. Um, I, wanted I think who, that's the opposite answer that many people listening would have jumped to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, well, that's true. But you know what? It, 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 but it paid off handsomely because, yeah. oh, my gosh, the caliber of the people who came into that job were amazing. And I'd like to say, and they all went, oddly enough, by the time I left, they'd all gone off to much better jobs themselves, right? So that was, that was kind of my job was to help them get a, a, a better job somewhere else if they couldn't take mine. But the other thing about it was if as a manager, my job and my the one job that I actually had to get right, I had to get barriers out of the way of their success because mm -hmm. everybody has you know you want to get stuff done but there's something in the way there's an obstacle there's a barrier there's a whatever and my job as your manager is they come to me and say jordan we got a problem i say here's a problem Zhoop, there it goes i have taken that care of it as best as i can now you can go forward so i say what how do you make this real in a sole practice well of course if you've got uh clerks or assistants or whatever the case might be or secretaries who work for you of course that's part of your job as well but the person that you need to do for this for first and foremost is yourself mm -hmm. right we, we like to say well i'm my own boss right i love being a sole practitioner because i'm my own boss i'm i work on my own i love that as well so my question to anybody who says I love being my own boss is what kind of boss are you? <laughs> right? How, you know, it's a good it, question. Yeah. Like, how are you? Are you helping the most important person in your business? Are you helping get barriers out of their way? Are you helping to remove things from from their path? And and if you're not, start doing that. Start being a great boss to yourself. And and so if if your if your key employee yourself is uh, is way down because you can only build 2.2 hours a day, as Cleo has said, because they're doing admin work, then get that admin work off your desk onto somebody else's or onto a platform or into a machine or something like that, because that's what your key employee needs. So to kind of bring it around to the topic we're, we're, we're discussing, when you're a sole practitioner, you're both an owner and an employee. And you have to do, in order to be the best employee you can be, you have to be a great owner. And when you think about it, that applies to any, I think, law firm of any size, any, any organization. You have a responsibility as the person who is in charge of the business to make sure that people, your people are doing as well as they can, that the business is doing as well as it can. And if you don't fulfill that, whether you're in a sole practice or you're in a 7,000 lawyer firm, then you're missing your opportunity. You are hurting the productivity and effectiveness of the overall enterprise. And most importantly, you are, at least for people who have this approach, you are diminishing your returns on investment. You are not getting the level of satisfaction, the level of outcome, the level of revenue you could be from this business. But if you engage, if you care about the business, then everything else is going to flow from that. That's awesome. Um, so we're, I will absolutely link to uh, the blog post that we started off with and another one that you did for Slaw on leadership for solos. And I'm going to include a link to your book, Law is a Buyer's Market. And maybe we can close by saying, because Law is a Buyer's Market is such a good overview of what the legal market looks like and what sorts of strategies firms need to be doing. It's written more from a medium to large firm perspective, but I think there is a ton of good information in there for firms of all sizes. Thanks. Jordan, I'm curious, you wrote this, um, you were probably writing it, what, two years ago? That's correct. I'm wondering, are there any amendments or updates you would like to make to what's in the <laughs> book for people who might be buying it for the first time today? Wow, yeah, good question. Uh, I, th I thought about a second edition and I thought, you know what, I might as well just write another book because, um, <laughs> because a, a lot 
lot, a lot has happened. Sam, what I would say is this, speaking very briefly, I would say that there has been kind of bad news and good news from my perspective. The bad news is that I'm still seeing institutionally speaking, uh, in, in terms of most law firms, and I'm not, I'm not talking now about the AMLA 100 or 200 and LJ, whatever, law firms of all sizes, mid-size, small, it, whatever, I'm still not really seeing uh, the engagement with these kinds of issues. For all the reasons we've talked about, that a lot of people don't want to think about themselves as owners. They're just looking ahead to the finish line. Three years, five years, seven years, I can be out of here and I can, you know, shake the dust off my sandals and, and we're done. So I have been disappointed to the degree to which, as you say, the solutions are there. The answers are there. They're not all perfect. They're not all ideal. There's, you know, one size will not fit all. But you can select uh, a series of remedies that you can apply and, and, and tools and techniques you can apply to your firm to solve many of these uh, issues and so forth. So I've been a bit disappointed in that sense to see that firms aren't really responding to that. Where I, ha I have been encouraged is with individual lawyers. The number of lawyers who have approached me either personally at conferences or by email or on, on the website or what have you, who are absolutely engaged and they're, and, and, and the great thing is, right, they're not coming to me saying, oh my God, I'm so worried about the future. It's like, you know, doom and, you know, whatever. You know, we have other reasons. <laughs> we have other reasons. Any, anyone who is actually engaged would not be doom and gloom. They'd be excited, I assume. This is exactly <laughs> it, right? They are excited to say, I see a chance to do something. I, you know, I have run into these walls. I'm frustrated. I'm irritated. But but I can see a door over there and I'm going through it and I'm going to go through that door over there and I'm going to bring people with me. And I really am seeing a wellspring among younger lawyers in their 30s and their 40s uh, who are saying, I can see a vision for something new and better than what we have right now. And that to me is tremendously encouraging. And these folks are going to either renew the firms they're working with right now, they're going to found new firms, they're going to go into these startups, they're going to go in with clients. So uh, I, I, for me, that's what I find really encouraging. And to the degree the book, I think, has been successful for me in that regard, it has been opening up relationships with people who have these attitudes and these approaches who have said to me, uh, this, this book's been great because it, it 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 tells me there are possibilities. They tell me it tells me it's okay to think about different ways of doing it. That to me has been really satisfying and really encouraging. Overall, are you optimistic that big firms will adapt and or firms of any size will adapt and change to what the changes in the market, or do you think that they will gradually be overtaken by? new firms and new companies that deliver legal services in a better way. And gosh, I was really hoping to wrap this up on a high note. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sorry. <laughs> you know, I, I would love to say yes to that question. I'm not sure that I can uh, in the sense of can firms turn around because the, the problem is these are businesses with a tremendous amount of institutional inertia built up over a long period of time, owned by people who don't fully realize they are owners of a business that is competitive in a market. That, that fact alone takes a bunch of lawyers by surprise. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess I am sort of, I suppose, when you put it that way. Yes, you are. So no, I, I, I don't have a lot of confidence. Uh, I, I do think there's a lot of law firms out there that are going to find themselves in five or 10 or 15 years, if it takes that long, and I don't think it will, where 
they are running out of people who want to be owners of the firm. They are running out of the kind of work that they want to do or they are equipped to do. And they just find that all the brand and all the goodwill and all of the assets they've built up are in the end going to be kind of dissipated away. And that's really sad to me. Either the, either the firm will be gobbled up by another firm in a, in a merger or an acquisition, or uh, as as they say, like a, a liquidating merger, uh, or it'll just kind of fade away. The, the 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 senior equity partners will retire, and the juniors will go somewhere else. And you know what? If that's what happens, it's kind of too bad. But but maybe it needs to. Yeah. Maybe it needs to, right? Uh, I, I make this point all the time because whenever you see a, a report, like a law firm collapses and, and the, the headlines come out, such and such, the death of such and such, right? The death of Dewey and the Wolf. It's like, <laughs> nobody's died. These are not people, Mitt Romney notwithstanding, right? These are businesses. They are they are platforms for the, for the delivery of legal services and the creation of productive relationships. And if they're not working out, then they will go away. And the labor and the equity capital that has energized these and made these firms possible, it'll go somewhere else because that's how the system is supposed to work. And that's what I think is going to happen. A lot of firms aren't going to make it, but the lawyers themselves, if they figure this stuff out, and again, I want to emphasize again, it's not as if I'm the only person out there who's talking about these things, and it's not as if I'm the rightest person out there talking about these things. There is a there is an extraordinary amount of good information and insight available to lawyers who want mm -hmm. to do something different. But what they're going to find is their current platform is no longer fit for service, and they're going to either join one that is, or they're going to create one that is, or they're going to set up a whole different way of looking at it, maybe in a startup, maybe in a new law operation, maybe in a legal tech firm, doesn't matter. But they'll find a better way to do it. The lawyers who get it, the lawyers who want to get it, that to me is the bottom line. This goes right back to what we're talking about. Do you want to get it? Do you want to be part of the market as it's forming right now? Or what you do? What you really want is to be part of the old market, because if you do, then happy trails, because <laughs> five years, you're going to be doing something else, putting your feet up on a rocking chair or something. You, you may have thought of that as a pessimistic ending, but I, I don't think it is. I think there's a lot of optimism buried in there. If you are a lawyer who is engaged and gets it and wants to be an owner and run a business or come up with a, a new creative or innovative business that delivers legal services better, there is abundant opportunity in this market to do that and to open your own way and create something amazing. Just not if your goal is to do it at an old school style traditional law firm. Yeah, I, that is that is absolutely my belief. That actually crystallizes it really nicely. The, the opportunities are there. The need is there. The moment is here. It's what I keep driving home to lawyers all the time. If you want it, it's there for you to get it. If you don't want it, good luck and Godspeed with your life. I think that's a nice place to end. Thanks so much, Jordan. Thank you, Sam. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Oh,